0: It really makes no difference who you are, where you're from. If you are human, you are gripped by stories. How much would you pay to be written into a famous novel? How much would you pay? Well that was a question posed a few years ago by a nonprofit organization which hosted a fundraiser and the online auction offered the highest bidder the chance to be written into the next Stephen King novel. The winner paid 25, over $25,000 to receive literary immortality by ironically being killed off in King's story. But it's interesting, isn't it, to think that people would pay big money to be written into a famous story. And I I think it reflects a longing deep in our hearts, a longing to find our place in a story bigger and better than our own personal story. Bobette Buster, aside from having the coolest name, uh, she said this, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. I think she's right. Narrative is our culture's currency, and he who tells the best story wins. I'm a pastor, so you're going to assume what I say next. But but I believe that contained in this book, the Bible, is the best story ever, is the most amazing story. Well, at the same time, I will confess to you this: it hasn't always been told the greatest. Our telling of it hasn't always been the best. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, there is something radically wrong with dull and boring preachers. How can a man be dull when he is handling such themes? I would say that a dull preacher is a contradiction in terms. With the grand theme and message of the Bible, dullness is impossible. Hear what he's saying? Have you ever been to a dull church with a dull preacher who preaches a dull sermon? Don't answer that. <laughs> that was rhetorical. Just sit in like, I've never, I, I don't get that, no. Our telling of this should never be dull. Because I firmly believe it's the ma- most amazing story ever and that every human heart longs for a great Story. There's a longing in all of us to be a part of a story bigger than our own personal stories, a story that's big enough to incorporate and add meaning to our individual personal experiences. The greatest story of the Bible, this story reveals to us that God has a divine purpose at work behind everything that takes place. And to know the story, to know this story, is to make sense of life and the world. If you know this story, I really truly believe you can now make sense of your life and you can make sense of the world. Now, at the risk of being a dull preacher, I would like to give a little history lesson for you. Some of you hear a history lesson and you've already checked out, but but this is important. In the late 1800s, there were a group of liberal German theologians who started to attack the fundamentals of the Christian faith, primarily at an academic level. They would would say and teach things like this The Bible's full of errors, it's not God's word. People people are, are not fundamentally sinful, they're good. The bodily resurrection didn't actually happen. It was just symbolic or it was just an illusion. And Jesus didn't have to die for our sins on the cross. He was basically a victim. He wasn't laying his life down. He was a Victim. Now, in response to this, a number of Christian leaders rose up to defend the, fundamental, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, and they wrote a series of documents on the fundamentals of Christianity in response to liberal theology. Can any of you guess what that movement became known as? Fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. And here was its point. Listen, here was its point. Its point was not to be, its point was not to be a holistic picture, but fundamental responses to key points being pressed by liberal theologians at the time, Do you catch that? It wasn't trying to be a holistic picture, it was merely trying to respond to fundamental doctrines being pressed at that time. But the rest of the story, because of all the controversy, wasn't really emphasized for a good long season that I I think actually continues. Fundamentalism was a response to liberal theology on specific things. And what evangelicalism comes out of is fundamentalism. This is an evangelical church. Now, when I say fundamentalism and evangelicalism, you're like, there are a couple of great terms. Hey, well-respected terms in society today. Are you a fundamentalist? are you an evangelical? Right. These, these t- terms need to be redeemed, but I want you to hear where they came from. Fundamentalism came from um, a, re- a response on a few specific doctrines being pressed at the time, and here are the fundamentals of the faith in pertaining to those. Evangelicalism kind of flowed from this fundamentalism, and evangelicalism is really all about the gospel at the center. It's a beautiful thing. Salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith. That's the heartbeat of evangelicalism. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. But when we step back from all of that a little bit, we see that the whole story of the Bible is even, is broader than the, the, the more narrow focus of fundamentalism and, and even evangelicalism in a lot of streams. The whole story of the Bible is about creation. It starts with God's goodness. It starts in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. The story of God doesn't start with the fall. It starts with his good creation. And then we deal with the issue of sin. And then we come to God's redemption. And then we can talk about our future. But fundamentalism, again, I I told you why, but fundamentalism chopped the beginning and the end off because they weren't issues that they were really being challenged at the time on. Only sin and the cross and salvation were being challenged at the time, so it was a response. But as a result, the questions that were traditionally asked about why are we here, what's going wrong, what's going to fix it, and what is the whole gospel were actually reduced down to you're a sinner, you need salvation, and heaven is better than the alternative. Now, I think those things are true. But is that the whole story of our faith? Does the story of the Christian faith start with, you're a sinner, what are you gonna do? It doesn't. And I, I wanna talk about it like this. I, uh, I used to make fun of my dad when we would watch movies when I was a kid because I would look over partway through the movie and I'd find him sleeping. i be like, dad, your know, throat chips at him, popcorn at him. Dad, what, 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 and pretend that he had been with us the whole time, right? But the problem is, is that people age. And so what's been happening lately as I have found myself awoken <laughs> by my wife saying like, are you asleep? Did you miss this? And I'm like, what's happening? What are we even watching? What's the story? Like, what just ha-? And I, I found that I would miss large chunks. This is, this is my life now. I miss large chunks of stories, of movies. I went to a Star Wars movie that released a couple years ago and went with some buddies to The Late Show. I think it started at 10. I don't remember anything past 10.10. 10. And they were talking about how great it was and this part of the story. I'm like, I don't know any. I know, that it, I know I went to Star Wars, but I don't know anything that happened. And so when we don't know the big story of the Bible, when we don't know the big story, when we don't get this kind of all-encompassing kind of vision of the Bible, where individual stories fit within it, we're often lost and, and don't know what to make of it. So you open up your Bible to this passage in the Old Testament and you're reading it and you're like, This is strange like this is obscure, this troubles me. You're like, what do I make of it, right? Because a lot of times we're we're opening the Bible and reading it and expecting that God is going to just have a really pleasant verse for me that jumps out, but this is the story of the Bible and it actually, everything in the scriptures uh, has a place and has a purpose, but how are we to know what that is unless we have... a general understanding of the plot lines, of the story itself, of where it starts, what's happening in the middle, and where it ends. I really think that we have a whole generation that's looking and trying to make sense of God and Jesus and culture and the world, and they're not quite sure how it all fits together. So we're embarking on a four-week story that, that we're, uh, four-week sermon series that we're, we're calling The Greatest Story. Because we really believe that that's exactly what it is. And the four movements of the greatest story are the fall, uh, oh, sorry, there, I just did it. I chopped off the front. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. See, a good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the plot makes the story. Some of my favorite movies in, in recent years have been indie films, which, which typically an indie film, an independent film, has a low budget but I find that many of them are quite good. Why? Because really it all comes down to story, doesn't it? If the story's good, it doesn't matter if it has a hundred million dollar budget or $4 million budget. It's all about the story. It's all about the story. The plot makes the story and the better the plot, the better the story. So we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at the best plot line. There is the biblical story. Wouldn't you know, it begins literally at the beginning and there's the middle, and the middle has a myriad of twists and turns, setbacks, and absolutely incredible advances, and there's even a happy ending. But it's an ending that doesn't come cheap, and it doesn't come easily. Essentially, we want to look over the next four weeks at the Bible in four chapters. Sometimes this is referred to the meta-narrative of Scripture, all of scripture, right? What is the meta narrative? What is the big picture of the Bible from eternity before time to eternal future? That's an enormous story. And that's why breaking it down into creation, fall, redemption, and restoration helps us to get a handle on the greatest story. These four movements to the plot line show up all over the pages of the Bible. Yes, you pick up the Bible and you read this obscure text and you're like, this is really strange. Yeah. Yeah because it's showing you once again the fall of humanity. But then there's something happening in it that, that you can't quite make out. And, and, and what's happening is there's this shadow of the gospel in it. There's a redemption that's coming and it's a marker of the way Jesus is gonna come through in it and this, the Bible is constantly, here's a creation, here's right, here's restoration, here's this picture and this little inkling that something greater is gonna come through this. The Bible really is, is essentially doing all of that no matter where you open the scriptures. Can I let you in on a little secret our services from beginning to end typically go through the whole Bible story. They start with creation and they start with the glory of God, His holiness, wonder of who God is. We sing about that to start our services every week and then we make this move, this shift. Sometimes it's through a prayer of confession together. And then we sing a song about our need of Jesus and we linger in that recognizing I'm broken. And then we sing about redemption that Jesus came and what Jesus does. And then we end our services with restoration all things new and we send you out with a benefit addiction saying the spirit's going to work through you he's going to send you out to do wonderful things for christ this week and he's with you and he's renewing things and that's what we try the story we try and tell you every week and it's the story of the bible that, that's the full robust christian story see the full robust gospel story answers the deep philosophical and spiritual questions people wonder about. How did I get here? What's the purpose of life? Are people basically good or evil? Is there hope in the world? What happens when we die? And what does the future hold? And listen, there's no story like the Bible's story. That apart from Jesus, these questions can't be answered consistently and satisfactorily. Therefore, this isn't just another story to take or leave. The story we're looking at over the next four weeks and then on is the story that we all find ourselves in and I believe is the most compelling and convincing answer to the deepest questions we all have. Our faith, contained in the scriptures, if we would see it for what it is. And so we need to start at the beginning because the beginning is the very best place to start. Creation, the reason it's important to have the whole story, uh, the beginning and the end is because the middle parts, particularly the fall only speak to our brokenness and not our purpose. They only speak to our fallen condition and not our created condition, which means when you start a dialogue with culture and all you tell them is what's wrong with them, not who they are and why they're born, you're gonna end up with a story that loses cultural influence. And not only that, lacks robust vision for ourselves. You ever find that? You wanna share the gospel with somebody? And what's the starting place? It's often, you're a sinner do you know that you need rescue? We start the story there. God doesn't start the story there. He starts at the beginning. He starts before the problem existed with a beautiful world that we need to discover. And we need to understand why are we here? What was the purpose in all of this? And so this morning, we're looking at God's good creation. We're gonna look at what culture is. And we're gonna look at the original calling given by God The greatest story begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2, with a world of harmony and perfect peace. And you can see, if you open your Bible to Genesis 1, very beginning of the Bible, we see that creation addresses three issues that we see in verse 2. The The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Creation addresses three issues right off the top, formlessness, void, and darkness. In ancient literature, we discover that the the seas were viewed as chaos, right, full of threat and mystery. The biblical creation account reveals God addressing the darkness and the void and the chaos, not with a fight, but with a word. God merely speaks into the void. The opening scenes of the Bible reveal an all-powerful God who speaks in the universe appears out of nothing. Verse 3, this is a good example of what God does. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Like an artist admiring his handiwork, God does this a number of times. God looks at his stunningly beautiful world and joyfully declares, it's good. There's repetition not to be missed in the creation account over and over and over again. It says, God said, God said, God made, God blessed. See, creation itself points to God's existence. When you look at the stars or out across the water or up at the mountains or down from the mountain, it's a testimony to God in creation. Wow, we have a creator God. Now, while creation is stunning, we are meant to always be reminded of this. The created, the creator himself is even more glorious. Seeing God as creator is a major aspect of who God is. That's why in the Apostles' Creed, we read of God, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I think these are the the perfect descriptors of who God is. If you have to narrow it down, he's Father. He's mighty. He's all powerful. And he's the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. All of God's creation is one big call to praise him. Creation reveals God's goodness and his greatness. Next, God creates the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. And they lived in perfect harmony with God and with each other. This is the the, the text we're going to kind of camp out on for the morning. It starts in verse 26 of chapter one. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I say that last, God creates the pinnacle of his creation for a couple of reasons. First, we see God made them male and female in his image. He hasn't said this. This term hasn't been used in the story for any other thing created, but humanity comes along and then it adds this, made in his image. And we're going to kind of unpack what that means. Look, God made a a lot of magnificent creatures, lions, whales, hummingbirds, sloths. (laughs) But as we can see from the text, God made a bunch of creepy things, too, that creep and are creepy and all that. He makes all of those things. And after the fall, this is just conjecture here, but after the fall, then he creates cats. So (laughs) most of you are with me. Some of you are deeply offended. But none of these creatures, none of these creatures, stunning as they may be, are made in the image of God. God made humanity. In his image, which leads to the second thing we see God gave human beings everything we need to fulfill our purpose of bearing his image. Subduing is the language, and having dominion is the language over the earth, and also given instruction in how we are to obey him. God, the great creator, made the first humans with the capacity to rule over the complex world wisely. He didn't give that task to anybody else and he did it as an act of stewardship for us that we would live to tend to the earth he created. When God put them in the garden and commanded them to have dominion over it, he gave them all they needed to do the job. This ties into our purpose. Jump ahead, if you have your Bible open, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. If you're an underliner type of person, i got a couple words for you to underline as we read verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Why don't you underline pleasant to the sight and also good for food? Because what we see packed in this verse are two express purposes in creation. Good for food and pleasing to the eye. (laughs) So first, God made the creation useful. In creation, we have the resources that we need to live. God gave us everything we need, but he didn't stop there. He gave us beautiful things. In creation, there is beauty and there is pleasure to be enjoyed. In other words, God not only provides for our needs through creation, he also provides for our enjoyment. I read about a painter who spent two years making a series of paintings of a particular tree at different times, in different seasons, under different conditions. The locals barely ever took notice of the tree until the artists forced them to notice it and then they saw it and then they enjoyed it. Artists have a way of seeing beauty in what the rest of us take for granted, what the rest of us barely notice. The world God has made invites us to respond to him in praise and gratitude for the provision and enjoyment we, see, we, we receive from the created world. I want to invite you over the next few days, when your needs are met from the resources that God has created on the planet, give him praise. Thank him. Part of the relationship we were always meant to have with God is this deep welling gratitude for his provision for all that we could ever need. And then anytime you see something stunning, something that captivates you, something that takes your breath away or an experience that's meaningful to you, thank him. He didn't just make the tree to bear fruit. He made the tree to be pleasing to the eye. He wants there to be enjoyment and pleasure and we are always to direct that back in gratitude to God, our good, powerful creator. I uh, spoke at a conference in the interior yesterday and so on Friday afternoon, I I drove up and then uh, last night drove home and um, it was quite an, the drive was so great for a couple of reasons. I've done the drive before, but this time I did it alone. And that was great. Uh, <laughs> the last time I drove it, my hand was was th- th- towards the back for a good portion of the drive, trying to separate brothers from just piling on each other. Stop it! Whoa! You know, like that, that, that was the drive. But the other, the other, the other thing, just being alone, in addition to being alone, which is wonderful, uh, was... Um, that I knew I was gonna be preaching on this. And I was thinking about, man, I have gratitude for, for beauty and what you see. And I'm driving along and I'm like seeing this rock formation on the mountain and I'm like, just like, whoa. And so for totally different reasons, my eyes were off the road. Because I was just like, oh, wow, this waterfall. And I'm watching and I'm like, God, God, you're amazing. It's like, like the artist focuses our eyes. When you start to look, you're absolutely stunned by our creator, God. Let that well just swell praise and thank you, God. I praise you, God. You made it like this. You've given us abundance. You've given us beauty. Thank you, God. See, what does this movement of the greatest story teach us about God, God the creator? Well, it shows us that he's powerful. He's transcendent. He's directly involved in creation, but not apart from that creation. He's a personal being who delights in his creation and he's holy. God is holy means he's set apart. He alone is God, right? In, in the instructions God gives Adam and Eve, we see that God is to be glorified through obedience by our submission to his gracious reign. What does that mean? It means that the glory of God is his holiness revealed. If you ever capture, capture a glimpse of the glory of God, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a visual of his holiness. Even if for a second, even if for a moment, glory is kind of a visual of God's holiness. Well, what's God's holiness? It's all of his attributes that make him who he is. And all of those things together make God holy, set apart other. there's no one like him he's the only one who's created out of nothing it's God that's what this teaches us the opening pages of the Bible resonate with us because we know we know we know we were made for this kind of world next week we'll look at the reality that we also feel that the world has gone wrong maybe even the world's gone mad But what that also indicates to us is that we were created for a world that's right. Whenever we're confronted with injustices, there's something inside of us that says this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. It's because we were made for the world of Genesis 1 and 2. Spoiler alert as well. That's why we ache. That's why we ache for the world of Revelation 21 and 22. See, the gospel explains this longing for Eden by telling us that in the beginning, God created a world that he declared to be good. I want to read the text one more time, and we're just going to look at one more angle of it. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let him, them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God Bless them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth what we see is that we create and we cultivate and when we create and when we cultivate we reflect God's goodness and truth we were made in his image And in such a way that we create and cultivate, we are meant to do it in a way that society flourishes through the things we do. We're given what theologians call in this verse I just read, a creation mandate or cultural mandate. We talk a lot about the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And as the series goes on, we'll be reminded how vitally important that is. But what we need to realize is that before sin, before the need for redemption, before anything, God gave another great commandment, and that is the command to create culture. Herman Bavinck, the Dutch theologian, wrote, Genesis 126 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in his image, namely, namely, that man should have dominion over all living creatures and that he should multiply and spread out over the world, subduing it. If now we comprehend the force, the force of this subduing under the term culture, now generally used for it, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after his image. Some of what I'll share for the remainder of this message are things that I learned from John Tyson, a pastor and author. He defines culture this way Culture is the beliefs, behaviors, values, language, intellectual achievements, artistic expression, and entire way of life of a particular group of people. That's a culture. Culture derives from the Latin word colere, which means to plow or to till and pertains to the cultivation, care, and tending of plants and animals. In a religious sense, the word cultus means uh, lake that gets too busy during the summer. <laughs> no, in a religious sense, the word cultus means to revere or venerate with a worshipful or religious component to it. So all of these together, we see whatever the culture reveres is at the center, and all of culture is created around it that's how culture works that's why culture matters culture matters because this is why god made you you were made in his image with a job description nancy piercey shakes it down this way the first phrase be fruitful and multiply means to develop the social world build families churches schools cities governments laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, and compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. We take these raw elements of earth, put there by God, he created out of nothing. That's not us. We don't do that. God is other. God is holy. We create as image bearers out of the materials he's put here. And out of the chaos and of raw elements, we order them together until culture is formed. We're gonna show you a series of pictures. Here's the first one. Here's a picture of earth, earth from space. What do we see? We see God's creation. We see land. We see the seas. But we also see... City lights, electricity from space, we're saying to the heavens, we're here. And this shakes down in a myriad of ways. What is music? Music is taking the raw elements of sound and ordering them and structuring them together to make music. You ever heard a young child start to learn the drums or the piano or the violin? That's not music, that's noise. That is noise, but when those raw elements are structured and fashioned together, they make music and it can take our breath away. That's why J.S. Bach, the great composer, always signed his songs, his his compositions, SDG, for Soli Deo Gloria, which means for the glory of God, I write these things because he knew that. I'm reordering these raw materials into something beautiful for God's glory, that's why I'm here. But what is dance? This next one. Well, Mennonites would say that is sin. <laughs> I have to make a confession. I, I said that in the first service and I lost it for the next minute. I couldn't get it back. I uh, Mennonites would say that is sin. <laughs> What is dance? What is dance? Dance is the raw elements of movement, ordering them together into beautiful expressions that can be simply stunning. Not when I try and put those movements together, but when certain others do, that's what it can be. What is architecture? Uh, Architecture is taking the raw stuff of earth and forming it into incredible structures. A beautiful, beautiful house like that, a bridge that makes no sense, boggles our minds, skyscrapers in the city. What is science? What is technology? It's discovery of elements that exist in the world and developing those into technology, which among other things, help us explore the vast universe. What is law? What is government? It's taking the chaos of morality and ordering it together in such a way that people find safety and structure and they thrive. That's why government and law matter. What is sports? Sports is where you take the chaos and you reshape it into different chaos. I think, I think that's what sport is. But have you ever watched golf and just seen that incredible drive and it lands on the green? That's taking the chaos of some of these movements and turning it into something incredible. What a story. Stories taking the chaos of language and words. We can use them in a clunky way, but they can be fashioned and ordered together into story, stories that stir our hearts. What is a painting? What is art? It's the raw stuff of paint, colors, and splotches becoming works of art. I haven't moved past finger painting. That is pretty much the best I can do. But some can take these raw materials and make the most stunning creations. What is a statue? I want to show you the G-rated version of the statue of David. What is it? Well, Michelangelo was asked, how in the world did you do this? And his response was this. It was there all along. All I did was chip away to reveal it. When Michelangelo says that, he's singing our song. It's why you're here. To, to take the raw stuff, materials, and f- chip away at them and fashion them into stunning things, helpful things that lead to the flourishing of people and it brings God glory as you do it. Did you know that's why you're here? Did you know that's why you were made? Timothy Keller puts it this way, we are rearranging the raw elements of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone meaning. Your work matters. Your creativity matters. You are an image bearer of God called to draw out the elements of a particular domain for the flourishing of as many people as possible. Doesn't matter if you clean toilets or work in government. You can do that to the glory of God. As you work towards the flourishing of others. Now we know that the story goes on, but we must not overlook this part. There is a purpose here that resonates deeply in the human heart because we were made for this. This isn't gonna be on the screen, but John Mark Comer connects what he calls our dual vocation. And I think it's really helpful language. John Mark Comer helps us connect Dual language, and I want you to hear this is essentially what I'm trying to say this morning. He says, We are called to a dual vocation to take the creation projects, that's Genesis 1 and 2, to take the creation project forward, and here's the other part of the dual vocation to help humans come into relationship with the Creator. That's tapping into Matthew 28. Go make disciples, help people see Jesus. This is a dual vocation that we have. Nothing on the planet, listen, nothing on the planet is more important than making Jesus known at the same time. That does not negate your purpose for meaningful work and creating culture for the flourishing of others and the glory of God. These two things are not in competition with each other. They actually complement each other. And as Christians work distinctively with Jesus at the center of our culture and it permeating through, there is a unique culture to Christianity that absolutely captivates people and they look in. And because you're fulfilling your purpose, why God created you it also leads people to recognize jesus and the mandate that the church is given to go and make disciples so you want to flourish in both of these vocations this isn't the end of the story you and i know that our world isn't united on jesus as the center of culture and everything we touch and create flowing from there no we live in contested space Later in the story, Jesus will come on a rescue mission to redeem his fallen creation. But for now, we observe this. The first movement of the greatest story, the first movement of the greatest story ever is about God creating a stunning world with humanity as its pinnacle, with a mandate as image bearers of our creator God to create and cultivate culture in community and with him. From early childhood on, we live for stories. Every night, my boys want me to read them a story. We read this story. We read other stories. I got home just in time for bedtime yesterday, and they're like, dad, can you read us a story From early childhood on, we all live for stories, something deep within our souls, hunger for stories and the truth they convey. But we don't only live for stories. We also live by stories. You realize that, right? We live by stories. What I mean by that, we live by them, is how we understand the story we're in affects how we live. That's why I want people to know about the greatest story ever. Because the story we believe we're in, what we believe about the story we're in, affects how we live. So when it comes to the story of our lives, here's the irony. When we live as if our personal story is at the center of our universe or even the center of the universe, we struggle to find meaning and significance. Now, this is a great problem in the West. Because our Western quest is for autonomy, self-governance. I want to rule my own domain. I want to be the center of my universe, but it's found bankrupt. It's found lacking. When we put ourselves at the center, we struggle to find meaning and significance. But here's the irony. When Jesus is at the center and we are pushed to the periphery, which this story will force you to do, it's then that we find true worth and value. Paul says of Jesus in Colossians 1, he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now what he's meaning there is that Jesus has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. He's not speaking about some Arian heresy that Jesus was the first creation. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. were created through Jesus and for Jesus and Jesus is above all things and in him in Jesus all things hold together that's why Abraham Kipper said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine architecture mine Sports, mine, music and arts, mine, law and government, mine, science and technology, mine. Jesus says, story, mine. And ever before, even before the fall, even before the fall, it's always been about Jesus. And that's a good thing. And as this great story, the greatest story ever unfolds, you're going to see more and more why Jesus at the center, that it's all about Jesus, is a really, really, really good thing. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much that all things were created by you and for you. This stunning creation points to you Jesus, I pray that that we would continue to uh, discover this dual vocation of taking these raw materials and creating creating culture in our little spheres for for, for the flourishing of others. Jesus, I thank you that your creation um, speaks of you. Lord, help us be um, drawn to our creator God, who is powerful and who is personal. Jesus, I pray in this series, we'd get a better handle on what you are saying in the Bible. And we would grow our confidence in this story, this incredible story, and just sink us deeper in our trust in Jesus. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.